Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It's Saturday, April 3rd. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Bellard. Yeah, it's Saturday. We're doing this one day early with mm-hmm, Easter mm-hmm. falling on April 4th. So digging into the waiver wire, it is opening week in Major League Baseball season. And it feels like there's a little bit more that we can we can read into now that games have started. Last week, we did this waiver pod. I felt like we talked about 10% of the possible players you could have bid on. Now I think we can hone in on some more players because all the final roster decisions have been made, the lack of clarity about schedules and how rotations were going to line up. You know, Those have been clarified. We're getting a look at some teams' bullpen plans. So things are coming together pretty nicely here as the first weekend of Major League Baseball season rolls on. Beller, how's it going for you on this Saturday? It's going good, DVR. Uh, happy to be here live on YouTube talking about this. If you're listening uh, to us on the podcast or watching us later, know that we're going to be doing this live through the season. So very exciting to bring that to you guys. And uh, yeah, usually we'll be here on Sunday. Uh, and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about uh, about what this uh, season is going to uh, be bringing us. I feel good about uh, where we have a couple of days of the season behind us and already starting to get some of those little tidbits of news uh, that we can actually put into action in this what feels like the first true fab period of the season yes absolutely I made some moves last weekend and I didn't spend a lot in most of my leagues I felt like this would be a better time to start making some of those adjustments we're gonna start with bats today because a lot of top prospects ended up making opening day rosters somewhat unexpectedly a few were in legitimate known job battles throughout the spring I think that that latter description applies to Jazz Chisholm who won the second base job in Miami he's 100% rostered already in TGFBI I think in most competitive leagues deeper competitive leagues someone took a chance on him on draft day or he was among the players picked up last weekend but the bigger question here is he a shallow league flyer he's rostered only in 33 percent of cbs leagues when we start thinking about 10 and 12 team mixed leagues that are out there he's out there in a good number of them there's power there's speed there was a lot of swing and miss in his game as we saw him in the upper levels the minors and the debut last season in the shortened season wasn't anything to write home about but the tools are very impressive and it's pretty clear to me like He's a part of their long-term future. If he hits, he stays. He's the guy all season at second base, or maybe he plays a little short a little later in the year, depending on how they want to make the pieces fit. But what is the shallow league appeal of Jazz Chisholm for you? I think you just made the argument right there, DVR. I think they're definitely a shallow league appeal because of what the ceiling is, because of the power-speed combo. And maybe he falls off eventually, but... You start there. You start that he definitely has that. That is a known skill set for him. He can you know, hit for 15, 17, 18 homers. He can steal 12, 14, 15 bases. Like, that's for sure within his realistic range of outcomes over a full season's worth of plate appearances. So you start with that, and you start with the fact that he should get those full season's worth of plate appearances. As you said, this team seems committed to him as their second baseman, as it should be. So right now, that's the only argument you need two days into the season. He's got that power-speed combo. He's got a direct line on locked-in playing time. Let the chips fall where they may, but that is easily enough of an argument, I think, for him to be attractive in 12, even 10-team leagues, just because there are not very many guys who can do what Jazz Chisholm does at his 90th or 95th percentile of performance. Yeah, and so many players that we're looking for, even just for speed, come with 
as many or more flaws than Jazz Chisholm has, and he mm-hmm. comes with yep. more yep. possible benefits, too, if that power comes through. He's hit a few balls hard in the first two days of the season as well. Has a decent spot in that lineup, not buried at the absolute bottom either. So uh, I definitely think he's worth considering for at least a 12-team league. 10 might be cutting it a little too thin right now, but definitely a guy with the up arrow next to his name here as we move into pickups this weekend. Uh, Jonathan India ended up making the Reds roster. This one was a little less of a surprise because Mm -hmm. we knew that the Eugenio Suarez experiment was at least going to play into the early part of the season. (laughs) A couple of errors on opening day. He did homer, though, so he did the typical Eugenio Suarez part thing. (laughs) Right. So I I think what's weird is if Jonathan India plays well, he went two for four in the opener. uh, It's almost like there are things out of his control that could start to limit his playing time. If Suarez at shortstop doesn't work and they have to move him back to third and they got to shuffle Mike Moustakis back over to second, India gets squeezed unless they think that playing India at short is a solution. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if they believed that was their best path, they would have just done that first instead of moving everybody around. So uh, how concerned are you about the way India's playing time is structured as you look at him as a possible pickup? I am concerned, DBR. I am because of exactly that. Like there is, there are, I think maybe two places on the diamond where you cannot mess around with the glove. It is at shortstop and behind the plate, and other way, other places you can, you know, try to get a bat in. Of course, corner infield or corner outfield is a place where you can squeeze almost any bat in. Uh, first base you can play around with a little bit, but like shortstop and catcher. You got to make sure that the gloves are rock solid there. And obviously the Reds weren't just going to throw away the A. Eugenio Suarez at short uh, experiment after one day, no matter how it went. Uh, two errors is definitely not how David Bell drew things up, but it's not as though that's going away right away. But I do think we have to be concerned about that sh- uh, shuffle back happening and suddenly looking at Kyle Farmer playing shortstop and Jonathan India being squeezed for playing time. As it stands, I think he's definitely worth going after where he is available because, again, as I said, it's not like Suarez experiment at short is done today or tomorrow or even next week unless things go really, really poorly. But that is something you have to be concerned about because if Suarez is as not real shortstop as he has shown himself to be to this point of his career, you have to think that this is something they are going to consider making a change on potentially sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's just a question of whether they're willing to sacrifice a lot offensively and go with someone younger like Jose Garcia, right, or right. if they're able to pull off some sort of early season trade, or if they want to go ahead and try Kyle Farmer there. I, I don't know if, if Farmer's going to end up being that much better defensively at short than Suarez, so uh, not a good situation in Cincinnati. But as India goes, I mean, I think he's one of those players that I don't think he's ever going to live up to being a, a fifth overall pick in 2018. I think that's become a little bit clear, but he could still be a good big league player. He could still be Definitely. a guy that with his plate discipline, you know, with a little bit of power, with some speed, ends up being an everyday guy in a ballpark like Cincinnati, that power could play up and maybe in his peak seasons, he's a low 20s home run guy. I think this season, most projection systems are in the 13 to 17 home run range for India. So I think settling at 15 seems pretty reasonably if mm-hmm. he reasonable if he's able to keep the job all season. And by the keep the job in this case, I think we're talking more about an 85 to 90% playing time share because there are so many moving parts around him. Let's talk about Taylor Trammell in Seattle, heavily rostered in TGFBI, 85%. 
it makes sense. That league is full of people that want to be right on prospects, <laughs> which is a compliment. Yes. We all love prospects. Outside of leagues like that, he's a little more available, similar to Jazz, similar to Jonathan India. Uh, you look at Jazz. what he's done so far, hitting fifth the first two games for the Mariners. I like where they put him in the lineup. Part of this is that the lineup's not that good. The bottom half of Seattle's lineup is going to be a problem all season long. He's patient. He's drawn three walks so far. He's shown that throughout his career. The big question for Taylor Trammell is how much power is he going to have? Is he the kind of guy that's going to get the bat knocked out of his hands a little bit at the big league level? Or can he at least do enough damage on mistakes, hunt some fastballs, and actually be a double-digit home run guy from the jump? Because if he's struggling to hit for power, I think he kind of falls more into a fourth outfielder role mm-hmm. once the Mariners have their full complement of outfielders available. And Kyle Lewis is hurt right now. Jared Kelnick probably coming up in a couple of weeks. Once those guys are up, playing time in the outfield will be a little bit more difficult to come by if everybody's healthy. Yeah, that's really where I run into trouble with Trammell. I almost don't even bother trying to figure out the skill set for this year because Kellenick's going to play every day. Kyle Lewis is going to play every day when he's healthy. Mitch Hanner is going to be out there too. So I just think you get really squeezed for playing time. Like You're not going to bully any of those guys out of consistent playing time unless you are just going way, way, way above and beyond what your expectations are. And I don't think that that's really going to be in the cards for Trammell, at least not this season. So for me, uh, I don't really think there's any appeal here uh, outside of, look how smart I am. I got this one right. Trammell's awesome. It's just... The playing time simply is just not going to be there for him once Kellenick's up and Lewis is back healthy. I think if you want to pick him up, it's fine. I think you just want to be careful how much you bid in a fab situation. Yeah. I think part of the appeal could be steals. Uh, we look at the the minor league numbers, go back to 2019 at AA for Taylor Trammell. 20 for 28 as a base dealer, did pop 10 home runs, but a sub-400 slugging percentage at that level. Young for the level when he did that. But that's the concern. It could be just an all-speed sort of skill set for him. I do yeah. like, as, as a guy that can steal bases, that he gets on base a lot. A lot sure. of speedsters coming through the minor leagues don't walk as much as Taylor Trammell was walking as he's come through the Reds and Padres system now. So he's the kind of player, though, if he doesn't hit enough, once the AAA season starts because he hasn't played there, the Mariners could say, we want to give you some time at AAA give him four, six, eight weeks there, bring him back in the second half, and then kind of work him in again. Because the other thing that factors into the outfield calculus for the Mariners is how they're using the DH spot. Mm -hmm. And with Ty France getting a lot of run early in the year, maybe something changes on the infield. Maybe they trade Kyle Seager, France plays third base, and then they've got that floating DH. So then you can play four outfielders together. That could happen, but that's going to take some time to play out. So... If Trammell's still out there in your league, you're looking at him as a speed option, I would just temper the bid. Probably more of like a, a 3 to 5% sort of player if you're desperate for speed, uh, given some of the shortcomings that we see. The other top prospect that ended up on an opening day roster among this group of hitters is Kyle Isbell. Of these players, he was probably the, the last one to get that opportunity. Like, a few people were jumping on board last Sunday night. He was a guy we did not talk about on the pod last week. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a pretty nice path to playing time in Kansas City. I mean, if you think about what they're doing right now, they're sort of pushing chips in for this season. Uh, Bobby Witt Jr. might come up at some point. Adalberto Mondesi's hurt right now, so you know there's one guy coming back that's going to shake up the playing time, but really it's a one-for-one swap for Nicky Lopez, who's just yep. holding that seat down in the short term. So Kyle Isbell's kind of interesting because 
he has an issue uh, similar to what we saw from Jonathan India in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I believe both of those players have had hamate bone injuries in their wrist, which has sapped their power. With Isbell, it was high A in 2019 where the numbers weren't that good for any prospect. And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this season. We're left to sort of fill in the blank on 2020. What was 2020 going to look like if there was a minor league season? For Kyle Isbell, he would have played at double A for most of the season and possibly all the season. And there would have been some sort of bounce back from that high A line. I mean, 216, Agreed. 282, 361, that wasn't going to happen again. He's he's a good player. He's a good hitter. How good he was going to be at double A is definitely a matter for debate. And you look at the underlying numbers in terms of speed. There's a little bit of speed there too. So I'm trying to kind of put together a profile with incomplete information, but I'm excited he's getting the opportunity. When I look at him... Compared to Taylor Trammell, I think they stack up pretty favorably. And I think the one thing that might lean me in the direction of Isbell is that I feel like there's a little less competition for his spot. Like if they both play reasonably well, Isbell might play more because of the way the Royals roster is built. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely on that, and that's why if I was looking at them as a, I can get one of these guys, but not both of them this weekend, and I definitely want one, Isbell would be my favorite. I also think, as you led off with, like we should look at what the Royals are doing organizationally and feel pretty good about the fact that Isbell is not only up with the big league team right now, but the fact that he's getting to play, or at least has been in the first couple of lineups. I always want to say play every day, but it's been two days of the season, right? <laughs> that he's been in the first couple of lineups and that it doesn't appear that he is going to get pushed out of the lineup in a consistent way uh, anytime soon. And of course, he could hit poorly and play his way out of the lineup, but for the time being, we should expect him to be mostly in the lineup for this team. And again, I don't think that's going to change in any short order here. So I think those two things are enough. Uh, as you said, we have to fill in the blanks a little bit mentally with what would have happened for him in 2020 had there been a minor league season, but I like taking a shot on him. I think that the playing time and the underlying skill set leads us toward a play where, where we can feel pretty good about running him out there on our teams for a week, two weeks, and, and see what he can bring to the table here. And I say look at organizationally with the Royals because, you know, they, they as you said, they seem to be trying to compete as much as is possible for a team with their uh, with their personnel this season. They don't really seem to be holding anything back. No real service time games here beyond Bobby Witt, and he's going to be up very soon. So I think this is a team that is comfortable turning things over to its next generation of players, which is good news for Isbell. Yeah, they got some pitching coming up too. I'm sure we'll be talking about Daniel Lynch and Jackson Coer and maybe a couple other players uh, at some point this spring. Uh, Michael Taylor also getting some run in Kansas City now. That was one of the earlier free agent signings of the offseason. Taylor was always kind of stuck in a fourth outfielder role in Washington just because of the outfield depth they have right. there. Because of his defense, I think he's going to play a lot in Kansas City. There's always been power. There's always been speed. The best season we've seen from him so far was back in 2017. 19 homers and 17 steals, hitting 271 with a 320 OBP that year, and slugged 486. That's a really mm -hmm. nice player. The main flaw is swing and miss. I mean, for his career, Michael Taylor has struck out in 31.3% of his plate appearances. That's always going to be part of his game. But yeah. when possible gold glove defense is keeping you in the lineup every day, you can get through that. If you can take the batting average hit and Michael Taylor's available in your league, I think you can actually pick him up at least in 15-team leagues. I don't know if you would necessarily want to play him all the time in 12s, mm -hmm. but he might be a kind of a, a schedule-dependent player that you could think about in a 12-team mixed league. 
such a sucker for Michael Taylor. I can't believe he's 30. DPR, this is someone who I think about as being like perpetually like 24, 25 years old, but he's uh, sitting here now in his age 30 season. I think he hit all the points, right? I, I mean, he's going to play. The power speed underlying skill set is there for him. Uh, the glove's going to keep him in the lineup. All those are good things. I don't see any real path to him playing his way toward the top of the order. I mean, he would really really have to hit that team is pretty settled at the top and they're only going to get more crowded at the top you would think when that Alberto Mondesi comes back uh, Royals were running him out there in the three hole for most of the spring so have to imagine that they're going to be looking at a Merrifield Benintendi Mondesi one two three once Mondesi is back and even if Mondesi falls down to the order it's not like Michael Taylor is going to move up so he basically is what he is in terms of playing time batting order uh, uh, slot and all that but I think there's still plenty here to get behind uh, because he, I mean, we could argue, and I think we'd be right about this, that this is the first time, maybe since that 2017 season, that he has a clear line on playing time. It just never happened for him in Washington because of how deep that team was. That's not going to be the case in Kansas City. Yeah, I would agree. And if you're looking for some splashes of red ink on a stat cast page, Michael Taylor has that, both with sprint speed and with some of the exit velo numbers he's posted at various points. So, uh, definitely a guy that could do some things uh, for relatively low draft day price and low in-season pickup price. Uh, I think we've just overlooked him because of the complicated depth yeah. chart they've had around him in D.C. Austin Slater is a guy that I think people are interested in. He's already on 76% of rosters. I was surprised GPI. to see that like, number. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a little high. But <laughs> uh, I think he's a small-side platoon guy for now. I mean, they faced mm-hmm. lefties on back-to-back days to start the season. And in daily moves leagues, maybe he's good enough to stick on a roster there. In weekly leagues, I think he's a lot more schedule-dependent. And when you look at the schedule for the upcoming week, two series, one against the Padres. They're going to face two lefties. And they're only going to face one lefty against the Rockies in the second series of the week. So six games. Only three starts, probably, barring Mm -hmm. injuries to someone else in that outfield. I'm not really interested here, even though I think the tools are pretty interesting. I think he's more of an NL-only sort of player and on-again, off-again sort of guy for mixed leagues when the schedule opens up. I think until they show us that they're willing to play him uh, all the time, that they're willing to make him something that's not a short-side platoon player, that he has to be that sort of schedule-dependent sometime guy. 15-team league, sure. Daily league, sure. Maybe not beyond that. When I say 15-team, sure, I I mean uh, if you have the ability to uh, move guys in and out, not necessarily someone who you're going to want to really start as a weekly long play. It's just... Too many uh, situations where he's going to go to the the bench with all the lefties that this team can trot out, all the left-handed hitting outfielders that this San Francisco team can trot out. It's just way too many ways to get him out of the lineup for Gabe Kapler. So I'm with you here. I would love to see him get an opportunity to play every day, but it just doesn't feel like it's in the card short of him either just mashing or an injury happening somewhere in this outfield. Uh, I think the the giant that I'm most interested in, actually, if I'm just looking for playing time, is Evan Longoria, rostered in 39% of TGFBI leagues, 18% of CBS leagues. I don't think he's great anymore, but he's going to be a decent accumulator. I think he's one of the guys that's not mixing and matching. I think they're going to mix and match a lot at every other infield spot. So I would say if you're looking for playing time, Evan Longoria could scratch that itch. Uh, in the same vein as Austin Slater, Donovan Solano was a guy that I got a lot of questions about because he didn't make my, my, my the cut for my rankings uh, this draft season. He was just on the outside. The main issue I have is playing time. And mm-hmm. 
is it time for me to take an L with him? Like, I, I just don't <laughs> think it is. Like, Tommy Listella is going to play a lot against righties. Solano's going to get those starts against lefties. So to me, he's Austin Slater on the infield. I think the batting average is going to be good. I'm still not convinced we're going to get that much power from Solano. So yep. I'm kind of out, even though the, the per-game numbers are pretty good. I mean, Tommy Lestello is going to start every game against right-handed pitching. That's like the one thing from Atlanta to Chicago to Oakland. Like Tommy Lestella can hit right-handed pitching. We've seen that from him. And so I think he's going to play every day against righties. And, you know, I could see them having lineups that include both of them. But Solano's going to get squeezed for playing time. I think that is just an absolute fact. And I'm with you. This is a guy who can give you a boost in batting average. We're not talking about like a 320 hitter or a 310 hitter or a 300 hitter. He's got he's a boost in batting average and really not a whole lot else. Uh, I am out on Donovan Solano. The middle infielder that I like, if you're looking for some help there, is Kevin Newman. And the reason I prefer Newman, time, yeah. I, just yeah, it's just less crowded there in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. I think there's a chance he's in and around the top of the lineup on a regular basis. We saw a pretty good year from him in 2019. We saw average. We saw double-digit power. We saw double-digit speed. Kind of just ticks all the boxes. So if you're looking for help there, and you're kind of looking at Solano versus Newman, I would make Solano the backup bid just because I think Newman is simply going to play more. Let me say also, Newman's got a good glove. So, I mean, he's going to – he's like – even when he doesn't hit – that glove's going to keep him in that lineup, and that lineup has no competition. He's going to be in the middle of the order when he plays. Yeah, that's a really good point too. There's just no one there to push him in the <laughs> short term. I don't think, I don't think O'Neill Cruz is going to be knocking on the year. door. <laughs> at least not in the first half of the season. Yeah. It's going to be a little while. I think they want to see what he does in some upper level minor league games before they give him that opportunity. I think the next player we're going to talk about is maybe the most who sort of player, but. If you listen to Under the Radar and you listen to Nando <laughs> Dofino, you know exactly oh, yeah. who this guy is. Yermin Mercedes, <laughs> he's UT only. He's rostered in 2% of TGFBI leagues. And, fun fact, Nando's not playing in TGFBI, so there's somebody else out there who likes <laughs> Yermin Mercedes. But <laughs> it was against the lefty starter, made his uh, yep. debut on Friday night against Andrew Heaney. Five for five with four RBIs and a run scored. That, <laughs> that'll put you on the map. It doesn't yeah. matter who you are. And here's the cool thing about Yermin Mercedes. I mean, he's a little old, but he's never been a below average hitter at any stop based on yeah. WRC+. He was at 157 and 150 at AA and AAA in 2019. He hit 23 homers in 95 games that season, hit over 300, had an OBP in the high 380s. I mean, if Andrew Vaughn is capable of playing left field, it's just a matter of putting your best possible hitter in the DH spot. And when you look at a guy like Mercedes versus someone like Larry Garcia, I think it's kind of an obvious choice to go ahead and give Mercedes some opportunities and just see what happens. It's all this is it's funny, right? Because your main Mercedes playing time is almost entirely dependent on Andrew Vaughn's corner outfield glove. That's really what it comes down to. Obviously, there's going to be a decision for Tony LaRusa to make if Mercedes is tearing the cover off the ball and Vaughn is also, but Vaughn's not playing very good defense. Like maybe there is some sort of defense they're willing to give away because the uh, the impact of having Mercedes bat in the lineup is so much greater than having Larry Gar- Garcia's glove in left field. I think that's almost always a trade worth making so long as a guy isn't a total mess in the outfield. Like we were talking about this earlier best place to hide a glove is in a corner outfield spot. Like I, I think that 99% of outfielders can make 99% of plays they're asked to make 
in left or right field. And so I think Andrew Vaughn can figure this out. He's young enough, right? You're not asking a 30-year-old to suddenly figure out how to play a corner outfield spot. This guy's young. He's got some athletic ability. Like he's, I think he's going to be able to figure it out to the point where your mean Mercedes bat is going to have enough time to breathe in that DH spot. And I've actually watched both of the White Sox games. The, the White Sox-Angels series was the one series that really stood out to me uh, as maybe the most fun series of opening weekend. Uh, and, I mean, that game last night, he looked awesome. I mean, he was he, – this wasn't just a case of, uh, of a dude in his first game just getting a bunch of fastballs. Uh, he was he was hitting changeups. He was spitting on good uh, breaking stuff. Like he looked the part of a guy hitting going five for five. So I am totally buying your mean Mercedes as a pickup again. Like look at all the other guys we've talked about. There are guys worth thinking about early in the season, but like. Is Kyle Isbell going to break through for you in a big way this season? Are you really doing anything with Kevin Newman other than accumulating playing time? Your mean Mercedes, if things go right for him, as you said, DVR, those minor league numbers stand out. What he did at AAA and AA in 2019, that jumps off the page at you. I don't care how much older than the average AA player or AAA player he was that season. Those numbers pop. And your mean Mercedes, in that White Sox lineup, if he is playing mostly every day, there's a lot of opportunity here for him to be an RBI guy, run scoring upside. The power could be legit. This is someone who I understand why he is the least rostered out of all the guys we've talked about. But if any one of these guys pushes through, Mercedes is going to be the one. Yeah, I mean, I could see you could probably argue your way to Mercedes over everybody we've talked about so far, except yeah. for maybe Jazz Chisholm. And even then, I mean, playing time concerns are very real for Yermi Mercedes. Let's, let's be very clear about that. Mm-hmm. If, if if that wasn't obvious in the way we talked about how important it is for Andrew Vaughn to be a good left <laughs> fielder just to keep Mercedes bat in the lineup, like it's, it's very true. He's UT only right now. The interesting thing here, everybody we've talked about, I would say caps out around a 5 to 7% fab bid. And yep. most of the guys we talked about are even a tick lower than that. Jazz might be the exception in leagues where he's still out there. He could go 10 to 15% because of the power-speed combo. Mercedes, because he's UT only, if you're in a 12-team league, at least half the teams have a UT only player already. So there's going to be a lot of people that can't bid on him or don't (laughs) want to bid on him because they don't want to bother with him. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the bidding will be somewhat tempered for a guy that is high-risk, high-reward, but has a pretty nice ceiling if he ends up getting a prolonged stretch of playing time. And I think the other thing I'm, I'm factoring in here, Eloy Jimenez, for as great of a hitter as he is, is not a good defender. He's a well below average defender in left field. So the White Sox tolerance for bad defense in left field might be pretty high. If they can (laughs) kind of keep it together with the combination of Vaughn and Mercedes between left field and DH, if they're still getting the production that they want from those two lineup spots, Mm -hmm. they don't have to get great defense in left field because they they were already built to have crappy defense in left. Great, great point. And they were not only were they built to have that crappy defense and left, but they built themselves around having a masher playing left field and a masher at their DH spot. And Larry Garcia really throws that off. So this is the one if, as this is as close to a one for one Aloy Jimenez trade as the White Sox could get without literally going out and making a trade. And so I think that that's another thing that might push them in this direction. And certainly Mercedes' debut made it a whole lot easier for them to feel good about that direction. Yeah, I, I think Mercedes is at least a 5% bid, which is, it feels a little aggressive in some ways. 
I love him, right? I mean, I'm talking about him like uh, he's my favorite guy that we've talked about, but I probably wouldn't go above that because I would like it's a long season. You want to keep your fab, and I'm comfortable as much as I want him on my teams. I'm comfortable risking that five, six percent is going to be good enough to get him. Yeah, I mean, you look at the plate skills in the minors too. Draws walks, doesn't strike out a ton. I just <laughs> what what could go right is the the thought yeah. that keeps bouncing around my head. As I look at Yermin Mercedes, <laughs> uh, one more bat to talk about. This is more of just a shallow league sort of question. Do you have any interest in Tyler O'Neill in shallow leagues, given the raw power he's shown us in the past, the fact mm-hmm. that he does flash some speed? And in the shortened season, even though the overall numbers weren't that good, his plate skills got better. The walk rate was up and the K rate was down, which to me was a, a small step forward for a guy that definitely had issues with contact upon arrival in the big leagues. Definitely interested in him for all the reasons you just said. He's going to play too. And, um, you know, it's been frustrating for me to see Dylan Carlson a little bit down in St. Louis lineup, but that's been mostly to Tyler O'Neill's benefit. So, uh, so long as he's playing, uh, so long as he has this opportunity, I am very comfortable taking a shot on him in almost any size league because we know for sure the power is legit when he connects. If things go wrong over the next week, 10 days, then things go wrong. But for the time being, I like taking a shot on him. Yeah, I'm with you. I think in more shallow leagues, like Tyler O'Neill is going to make an impact, especially if you're starting five outfielders. If you're down in a three outfielder league, it might be a little tough for him to do yeah. enough to to crack that group because you're talking top 30, top 36 sort of outfielder. He's probably more of like a top 50 sort of outfielder if it starts to go right for him here in 2021. All right, let's get to some of the pitchers available for the upcoming week because the season started on a Thursday because we burned through the first three or four starters in a lot of rotations. The two start pitchers in particular are gross for the upcoming week. They are not guys that you feel very good about. So you have some very difficult decisions to make. If you want to take that volume, you are taking on some risk. If you happen to be in the handful of leagues where Anthony Desclafani is available, I think he kind of fits more to the gross group because the matchup, at San Diego is not a good one. Like, this is a Padres team that will score runs yes. in bunches now. <laughs> Petco is still a great place to pitch, but now you're facing a well above average lineup, so that has to be factored in. But I think it leads us to a general question. They have the Rockies on tap for their second series, so it's a good week for the Giants if you can only use the second start against the Rockies. In Descafani's case, you have to use them both in a weekly league. Do you find him to be good enough to trust him in the difficult matchup, knowing that you get the easy breezy matchup at home against the Rockies, I guess it would depend uh, on the rest of my um, the rest of how I feel about the rest of my staff in general. In a vacuum, I'm going to say no here. I'm going to say that I want to see it from Disclafani first. The San Diego offense, I mean, already through two games is exactly as advertised the way that they fit the ball to start the season. I am very intimidated by that matchup. I don't care where that we are getting them. It's just too good of an offense that to, to really go up against. And it's like, like these two matchups, right? Like these are polar opposite matchups. And so we're going to have this conversation a lot this season. Do I take the risk of the San Diego matchup? knowing that I've got the Colorado matchup to fall back on. Again, I think a lot of it depends on the rest of your staff and how things are looking. But in general, like I am far more afraid. Like, like I think there's a much better, much greater risk of DiSclefani or any DiSclefani type pitcher getting lit up by San Diego and then just having like a fine game against Colorado rather than the vice versa of just shutting out Colorado for eight innings and then 
holding water against San Diego. I'm way more afraid of him giving up six runs in three innings against the Padres and then like three and six against Colorado than getting a great start against the Rockies. So I am staying away from this one. Yeah, I think he might be sort of the, if you had him on your <clears throat> roster already and you're looking at the alternatives, depending on who those alternatives yes. are that are available, you might talk yourself into picking someone up <clears throat> and, and passing <clears throat> on this two-start week if you can. He's right on the borderline, so I figured he was worth bringing to the conversation. Uh, Daniel Ponce de Leon goes on the road to Miami. He's home against the Brewers. Something was up with his control this spring. He had a 15-13 to 13 strikeout-to-walk ratio in 17 innings. It's one of the few things in the spring that can actually be a little bit of an indicator. So there's definitely some risk here. At Miami is a spot that I've been really thinking about targeting for a few weeks now, so that feels sure. pretty good. And if I'm going to take a shot at the Brewers, I'd much rather take it away from Milwaukee. So he gets them in St. Louis for the second one. I think you're mostly just hoping that he gets through five innings in each of these starts and steals a win or two because I don't think he's going any deeper than that. I think they're going to turn those games over to the bullpen as soon as they possibly can, and I just don't see him as a volume guy. So what's the interest level for you with Ponce de Leon? It's more than Di Sclafani. I mean, right, you're talking about you don't have this murderer's row of a matchup against uh, San Diego. You've got a pretty comfortable matchup against Miami. And then, yeah, Milwaukee team that obviously is no pushover, but a team that's not going to totally make you run and hide. And the other thing that puts him over the top is we're talking about a guy with a 27% career strikeout rate. There's just way more strikeout upside with Ponce de Leon than there is with Di Sclafani. Uh, He's someone who uh, I'm with you on the fact that if he's already on my team, and I don't have to go out and spend fab dollars. I feel pretty comfortable plugging him into my weekly lineup for this two uh, this two step. Uh, if I do have to go and spend some fab dollars on him, he's probably toward the top of the list. And as I'm just sort of eyeballing the the list of guys who we're going to talk about with two starts, he's probably the one who I would. He's definitely take the probably away. He's definitely the one who I would go after first. Yeah, and I think bidding here hopefully is tempered in the three percent range Should at the be. high end. Yeah. I don't think you want to go much more than that because the appeal of most of these guys is limited entirely to getting two starts and, and not at all to uh, we're not talking about guys that are skilled that you actually want to yes. have around for the long haul <laughs> these guys uh, aren't very skilled if you will <laughs> I mean, they're better at pitching than 99.9 percent of people on yeah. the planet they're yeah. just you know not necessarily <laughs> i would get lit up by lineups. the marlins if i took them out against them are you kidding me yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making contact against Trevor Williams. Um, he's got the Brewers at home. He's got the Pirates on the road. So a little revenge game for Trevor Williams, which yeah. I say with a lot of sarcasm, of course. <laughs> Eleven to one strikeout to walk ratio in spring. So pretty good form coming out of that. Thirteen and two thirds innings. I'm just curious to see if the Cubs are changing anything about his pitch mix and usage. I mean, this is a pedigree guy that's never missed a lot of bats. And was stuck in Pittsburgh where pitching development really seemed to fall by the wayside. I know the new front office, the new coaches are, are turning things around. So there was an opportunity for Williams to work with them a little bit in his final seasons there. But is there any reason to be optimistic about him being a different pitcher? Or are we just saying he's the same old Trevor Williams, but home against the Brewers and road against <laughs> the Pirates puts him into the mix for at least 15 team leagues, if not for 12 team leagues, just for this week? I think there's something to be said for him maybe uh, being benefiting by getting out of Pittsburgh. We love talking about organizations that handle pitching well. I'm not saying the Cubs are necessarily – they certainly haven't proved that, I guess, at least to this point. But the reverse of that is organizations that don't handle pitching well. And no one is saying Trevor Williams is Garrett Cole or Tyler Glass now, but those guys left Pittsburgh and look what happened to them, right? They they both hit their ceilings that they always had with the Pirates and were never really able to find. Uh, Trevor Williams is, a, is an interesting guy. He actually uh, is one of the 
these very thoughtful guys about the process of pitching. And uh, Patrick Mooney, who is one of our two Cubs beat writers, uh, got to go really in-depth. Actually, I think it was Sahadev Sharma, the other Cubs beat writer, went really in-depth with him on his process, on his pitch mix, on changes that he did make in the spring that he was comfortable uh, putting out there to the baseball world. Uh, if you're an athletic subscriber, I definitely recommend you go and read that. If you're not, you can get in for a dollar, right? Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. So go ahead and do that. All that is to say that I think that right now, as he is about to make his first start for the Cubs, I am comfortable betting on him being a different guy out of Pittsburgh, as you said, a pedigree guy. So I think there is something untapped about him that he could find getting with a new pitching infrastructure. And the Cubs have invested a lot going all the way down through their organization in building this strong pitching apparatus. And I think that Trevor Williams could be someone who is going to benefit from being part of that. And I also look at the fact that he was almost for sure going to be a starter, but it wasn't a guarantee. It was him, Albert Alzali, and Alec Mills battling for the last two spots in the order or in the rotation. And Alec Mills had some institutional knowledge with the Cubs and some goodwill built up after last season. And he's the one out of the rotation. So I take a little bit of that as a thumbs up for Williams and Alzali. For that matter, I like this one. I would I would rather take Williams for this two start uh, this week than Di Sclafani, even if I think Di Sclafani is the better pitcher over the long haul. Yeah, I would say Williams versus Ponce de Leon is where I have a toss yeah. up. I mean, they're going to mm-hmm. be probably at the same bid, and who I put first on the list <clears throat> is still going to go down to the wire. I think they're both intriguing to me. I actually think Williams has a better chance of getting you more innings, believe it or not. So, so I, I think that might be the tiebreaker for me with Williams. I, I just. I can't help but see a five-and-fly guy when I look at Daniel Ponce de Leon's profile, and that that walk rate this spring is really weighing pretty heavily on my mind. Uh, Adrian Morajon gets to this week. He gets San Francisco at home and Texas on the road. The matchups are great, but (laughs) I'm not convinced he's going to pitch very deep into his start. I think he's maybe a three- or four-inning guy. If they don't have plans to put an opener in front of him, I'm actually not that interested because you have no chance at a win if he's not going to go five. And then you're just hoping for a ratios play where maybe between the two starts he gets eight innings and strikes seven or eight guys out. I just yeah. think there's there's not enough possible reward to take on that risk here, even though those matchups are very enticing. You really need the strikeouts. And it's something he's always done. I mean, we're, we're talking about a very incredibly small sample at the majors. But uh, but what, he had 25 strikeouts in 19 and a third last year, 9 and 8 innings the year before that. But go back to his minor league numbers, uh, 11 Ks per 9 in 2019 at the AA level, a little bit better than 10 in 62 and two-thirds at high A in 2018. So there has always been a, a, a foundational strikeout skill set for Morahone. But if he doesn't deliver those strikeouts, even if he goes just a combined you know, nine innings in these two starts, you still want like 10, 11, 12 strikeouts for him to really be worth it. And that's possible, but you, then you're asking for him to have almost like a 99th percentile performance of what he's capable of in these two outings. The matchups are great, but matchup can't be everything. If you really need the strikeouts, he's fine to roll the dice on. I mean, what are we capping this bid at? 2%? Something like that? It's a it's a small bid to get Morahone on your roster, too. If someone's willing to go 5%, I would say let that person have him. I think I'm even closer to a bin bid for him because I yeah. just think the innings are so low that the win probability is surprisingly low, even though I do think the skills are intriguing. I wish he had this matchup in June 
because <laughs> at yeah. that point we'd know a lot more about how fully stretched out he is, the mm. usage and everything. It's just there's a lot of uncertainty here. So he's a, a bottom of the list sort of guy for me, but I wanted to bring him up because I think people are going to be interested given that there's some prospect pedigree there and given that those matchups are just that good. How about Steven Matz? Rostered in 17% of TGFBI leagues as the weekend rolls on at Texas, home against the Angels. The Angels are a lineup that I'm definitely fearing. I've been watching that Angels-White Sox series this weekend. It's been great so far. And Matz has been such a Jekyll and Hyde pitcher throughout his career. He's got two sub-four ERA seasons with good strikeout rates, but he's got two seasons with an ERA over six. And he's got one league average season. And maybe he's just a league average pitcher who's a high variance pitcher because he doesn't have a very deep arsenal. So mm-hmm. all that being said, if he's just a league average starter, are you throwing a league average starter with those combination of matchups? Yeah, I don't think so. And again, now we're getting to a point where we've thought this is the fifth pitcher we've talked about. This is the fifth two start likely available pitcher we've talked about. And this is the one I like fifth out of five. So like how many contingencies are you putting on this? to get down to Matt's. I mean, that's really what it comes down to for me here. Uh, a league average pitcher having to start him in both these matchups, again, sort of akin to what we talked about with Di Sclafani. Do I really want to take what feels like you know, maybe a semi-contested layup against Texas to get the also tough matchup against the Angels? Uh, I'm not so sure I feel comfortable on that with Matt's. And again, if I'm really having to go beyond Di Sclafani, beyond Ponce de Leon and Williams and Morahone. Maybe I just feel like this isn't the week for me to tempt the two start waters with any of these pitchers, and I take a step back. So I can't really get it on Matt's. Uh, maybe a, a zero bid if your league allows it, and if I get him, then sure, I'll throw him out there and think about it, but I don't want to sacrifice really any fab resources to get him. I'll go Matt's over Maury Hone just for the possibility of more innings, but again, sure. near min bid, I, I don't think you have to do it. I think Morahone in those matchups, like if you if you told me Morahone, guarantee Morahone gets ten innings and Matt's gets twelve. I feel like Morahone could get more strikeouts in his ten with those matchups than Matt's does in his twelve. It's possible. I think that's a, a really good way to look at it. Uh, Jose De Leon also rostered in seventeen percent of leagues, and again I point out, not a Defino, not in TGFBI, not inflating that number. Uh, matchups against Pittsburgh at home and Arizona on the road. So I would say two very nice spots for him at Arizona because of the humidor a few years ago has really become more of like a neutral sort of place to pitch or closer to neutral place to pitch Mm -hmm. than the uh, pitcher's nightmare that it was (laughs) four plus years ago. I I look at this one and I I think it's a leap of faith in the Reds. And I think the Reds are a good organization at developing pitching. They're getting a lot of mileage out of guys. So this would be another step in that direction if they can turn Jose De Leon into a useful starter. So what are you doing here? Because a 22 to seven strikeout to walk ratio and 14 and two thirds this spring is interesting for sure. But Mm -hmm. this could blow up very quickly if the command isn't there. So how are you approaching De Leon? I think when we get to this point of our, of our fab process, we have to ask ourselves, like, what do we want our fab to be for? Um, Because like, Eventually, like I want to be going after guys. I don't. I don't want to only be spending on two-star pitchers. I want to be going after guys who also could contribute beyond this week. And there is definitely some value in going after guys who can get you two starts. And you obviously want to use some of your fab resources toward that end. But I think you need to be careful of doing that this early in the season because before you know it, you could spend ten percent of your budget 
on guys who are picking up only for that week. And for me, DeLeon is a guy who at the present, outside of very deep leagues, is only for this week. And so now we get back to the same discussion of, you know, is it, or am I comfortable with this guy just for this week, the one we just had with Matt, the one we have with Morahone. And as good as these matchups can be, I'm not sure that I am. So again, this is probably someone who I'm staying off of. It's because of more my fab process than anything and the way that I think about this. Like, I don't want to sink too many dollars in the first weekend of the season into guys who are almost certainly, almost 100% going to be this week only. I want to at least at this point of the season, like Ponce de Leon. Ponce de Leon could be someone who sticks on my team. Trevor Williams could be someone who sticks on my team. Di Sclafani, even though I don't like him this week, someone who could stick on my team. I like that. I want that this early in the season. De Leon, almost certainly. Even if he has a good two-start run here, like I could very easily churn him for someone next week. And so that has me wary of going after him. I don't want to spend a ton of resources this early in the season on guys who are going to be on my team for two days, and I'll even forget that I ever had them a month from now. I very reluctantly think I trust him more than Steven Matz, given the matchups, which is... I think, I, I think I'm with you on that. It's not saying much. I put, I put him ahead of Matz, ahead of Morey Home, but like you, I'm probably going min-bid or $1 above the mid mm-hmm. just to see what happens, and I'm not stressing it if I don't get him last two start guy to talk about Brett Anderson at the Cubs at the Cardinals so two on the road but more pitcher friendly environments than his home park interestingly enough better career ERA and whip than Steven Matz obviously doesn't bring the same strikeout appeal Mm -hmm. Uh, the weather is changing in the upper Midwest this weekend so that cold opening day that we saw at Wrigley and the snow that we saw in Detroit that's all (laughs) going away we're kind of easing into summer here for the next couple of days. Yeah, good news for both of us. Good for you and me. (laughs) Not necessarily good news for pitchers in those areas, but Brett Anderson's a ground ball machine anyway, so Mm -hmm. I think he's probably right in the middle of this group. I think if you are interested in Trevor Williams, you're probably also interested in Brett Anderson because there are a lot of similarities between them, and Anderson's actually had a little more success to this point in their respective careers. Yeah, I agree with that. That's where I would put him. Um, I would maybe, I would maybe trust him a little bit more than the last three guys we've talked about. Maybe not De Leon, but uh, he's maybe he's probably right there in that group. I mean, I don't want to sound the alarm on the Cubs uh, after literally one game, but that offense in opening day looked a whole lot like the offense that gave the Cubs just nightmares in 2020. A ton of swing and miss, uh, very little uh, putting the ball in play in situational times. I mean, this is just a really, really bad performance. And I think there could be some reasons to think that a lot of that's going to carry over for the Cubs all season. So I think that maybe is a softer matchup than the on-paper personnel would suggest. But again, like I hate to keep repeating myself, but I want, a guy, I want guys this early in the season who I am comfortable sticking with for more than just this week. And I don't think Anderson is necessarily going to fit that bill. And I don't even think that he's necessarily the best guy for just this week. So, again, $0 bid if my league allows it, min bid, whatever that might be. If I get him, I get him. If I don't, very comfortable moving on. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't look like a week where there were a lot of even one-start pitchers who have long-term appeal. These guys all look like streamers to me, too. So I'm going to run through these four one-start options real quick. Johnny Cueto, the most rostered of the bunch, home against Colorado. Austin Gomber at San Francisco. He'll be back uh, on the road against the Dodgers in his next start, so that's clearly a pitch-and-ditch situation there, given that Coors is his home (laughs) park. Uh, John Gant against the Marlins at home, and then Wade Miley against the Pirates at home. So what is your interest level in those one-start streamers compared to some of the two-start pitchers we've talked about? 
I, I can make, I could get behind Wade Miley because of that matchup against the Pirates and because he's a guy who has a pretty comfortable floor in matchups that you feel like he should be decent in. I guess Johnny Cueto you could say the same thing about, um, but I'm not going crazy for any of these guys. I just don't think that any of these are needle movers to the point where I have to have them. And I know that you know, probably most people, even people who would go after them, would say that, but... I like to be pretty guarded with my fab money this early in the season, and I'm not going to be stressing about adding a Cueto or a Miley in this first week. I would rather have the dollars. I think in this case, Miley is the most interesting to me as well. These are all min-bid sorts of guys, though, that mm-hmm. try to burn through some spots. And Miley, to me, is like a lot like Brett Anderson, maybe with a little bit more strikeout appeal. He's flashed that a few times in his career. So of those four, I think he is the guy I am most comfortable with. Uh, in those matchups as well. Let's get to relievers. And we saw some closer situations clarify a little bit in the first couple of days, and I'm sure more will happen between now and Sunday night. This is the one of the downsides of doing this on a Saturday morning is that two days worth of games can shake things up. Uh, Jake McGee looks like he's clearly the guy in San Francisco, mostly available in shallow leagues at this point. I think in 15-team leagues, anything deeper, he's been rostered for a few weeks he was drafted and held uh, so not a lot to dig into there but mm-hmm. in a 10 team league where he's out there do you trust them enough to go ahead and pick him up I do I mean we've seen this from him before uh, we expected him to be the closer for this team to start the season that's exactly where he stands so yes I, I feel very comfortable about that and something you have to like about Jake McGee um, yeah I've been beating the drum for Reyes Moronta but uh, if, if McGee holds this down like he's got Job security, I think, right now. I, I think it would take multiple bad outings for him to really be challenged. And with the way saves are flattening out across Major League Baseball, anyone who's got job security should be 100% rostered. I don't care what the size of your league is. So, yes, no matter my size of my league, if McGee's out there, I want him this weekend. I think it, it's kind of a toss-up in shadow leagues, Chick McGee versus Mark Melanson. And Melanson... Looks like a miss for me. Saves on back-to-back same. days to open the season. Same, same. Emilio Pagan pitched the eighth <laughs> inning, got the second win of the season already. So uh, still fine. If you drafted Emilio Pagan to be the closer and you got two wins in the first two games, you can't be <laughs> yeah. that angry because Emilio Pagan really wasn't that expensive at any point in draft season. And I, I wonder if Drew Pomeranz might have some limitations on back-to-backs given that he had a little arm injury that he was dealing with during spring training. But it looks like Mark the Shark is clearly the guy to start the season in San Diego. So McGee versus Melanson, because I think they're going to be available in shallow leagues. They're not going to be available in deeper leagues. Who do you prefer? This is such a tough one because Melanson has like some serious competition with Pomeranz, with Pagan. Like Those are really, really good pitchers. But the fact that Jace Tingler set them up the way that he did in that first game of the season, it was it was perfect, right? It was Pagan in the seventh, Pomeranz in the eighth, Melanson in the ninth. And then, as you said, Pagan came in in the eighth, got the win, Melanson locked it down uh, for uh, for the Padres in the ninth inning. I, it's so close because McGee doesn't have that competition. Melanson does, but Melanson's on a better team. I think all things being equal, Melanson's probably just the better pitcher. So I, because of that, I'm just going to trust the talent. There's so many unknowns. One thing we do know is that Melanson's probably the better pitcher. And so if I can only have one of them, I'm going to go after Melanson. It's so close. I just think it's the Padres, so close. <laughs> the Padres being a better team, even though they've got better right. alternatives, that sort of mm-hmm. swings it in favor of Melanson for me if I'm in a shallow league and they're both sitting out there on the wire. Uh, more likely, though, 
you're digging into the dregs. And if you're lucky in a deeper league, <laughs> Jake Diekman wasn't dropped last weekend. Uh, so Diekman's rostered in 66% of TGFBI leagues. He appears to be the favorite to close with Trevor Rosenthal on the IL. And looking at Trevor Rosenthal news, he has not had an MRI yet. Uh, they're hoping that medication will get the inflammation in his shoulder down. This is according to Alex Coffey of The Athletics. So timetable for him, a little bit murky. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a lengthy absence, but you just never know with a shoulder especially. And Diekman, I think, at least is useful even if he's not getting saved. So if you were to pick him up and have him on your roster for a couple of weeks and Rosenthal gets activated in the middle of a week and starts getting saves again, you're not completely burned for those few days where Diekman's stuck in your lineup. So... Uh, what's the interest level for you with Diekman, and how much of a threat do you think Sergio Romo is to possibly vulture a few of those opportunities while Rosenthal is out? I think Romo probably vultures some opportunities, but I, I'm very interested in Diekman. As you said, he's going to be useful regardless of the role he's in. And like, it's not like we're talking about the picture of health in Trevor Rosenthal. Like, No one would be surprised if Rosenthal, if this takes a little longer or if he comes back and then has to go back on the IL. And Diekman is right there to be the guy. For Oakland. So I think that there is a lot to like about Jake Diekman. Like, I think depending on the structure of your league, I could be potentially more interested in Diekman than McGee. That would take a very, it would be a very uh, narrow needle that you would be threading to make that happen. But it just goes to show you that I am just across the board, I'm interested in Diekman. Like, there's a lot of skill value here that is going to play in almost any sort of league, even if and when he is not getting consistent save opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. I would I would have him behind Melanson and McGee in leagues where they're so all available, but he's comparable, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of my expectations while he has the job. It's just that he's not likely to have the job as long as either of those two have it. Uh, I think in the world of closers, we're often looking for instability. I thought E.B. Garcia would be more widely available. He's on rosters in 95% of TGFBI leagues, which I think is the result of those leagues drafting pretty early in March and being a slow mm-hmm. draft. So people maybe have lucked their way into the next guy up in the Miami bullpen because Anthony Bass opened the season as the closer and promptly blew the first save opportunity that he had mm-hmm. on Friday. Four earned on four hits and one inning against the Rays. So I think the problem is that one bad outing isn't usually enough to just completely knock a guy out of the job. But when you're Anthony Bass and you don't have a multi-year <laughs> track record right. of being the guy in the ninth inning... It takes less for you to lose the job than it does if you have that longer track record. So in the handful of leagues where Yumi Garcia is on the waiver wire this weekend, and again, we'll get the benefit of seeing what happens in one more game of that series. Are you picking up Garcia, stashing him, expecting a possible change there? Or are you taking your bullpen speculation darts and throwing them somewhere else? I think Garcia is a great great dart to throw. I mean, he's got the strikeout stuff that Bass just doesn't have. I mean, that's on top of it too, right? It's that not only does Bass not have any sort of closer track record, but he doesn't have the closer profile. He is not someone who's going to overpower you. He's not someone who's going to strike out a ton of batters. And that's just not what we expect to see from closers. And frankly, it's not what we want to see from closers. How do closers get into trouble? Walks, home runs, balls put in. I mean, that's what you are trying to avoid. That's why we see closers have elite strikeout stuff because the best way to prevent a team from getting that one run to tie the game or those two runs to win the game is to just strike a bunch of dudes out. And Bass doesn't do it. Garcia can do it. He's clearly the next guy up. And I think it's going to be sooner rather than later that he takes over as the starter. Almost certainly the best stash out there, depending on what's available in your league. Yeah, I I think (laughs) there's a chance at least that he's the best available. And 
what's tricky though is that you have an opportunity to get a current closer in Baltimore who's very unconventional. And very unconventional usually means discounted. <laughs> Cesar Valdez got this save in the Orioles opener and it looked really good. And he's weird for a bunch of reasons. I mean, he's 36, yes. which yes. I'm 36. He's our age. He's yeah. our age. He's our age. And he's a first time closer <laughs> in the big leagues. So that's a little weird. He got three saves last year, so it's not totally out of nowhere. But here's what's weird about him, like truly weird. Being 36 doesn't necessarily make you weird, even though I am a little bit weird. <laughs> We're talking about a guy who throws a changeup more than 80% of the time. So it's the it's the one-pitch approach. We've seen that work with you know Mariano Rivera's cutter and Kelly <laughs> Jansen's you know. cutter. But those pitches are at least 90-plus miles per hour. This isn't a high 70s changeup. It's a really good pitch. It's a good changeup mm-hmm. based on movement, based on everything you're looking for in a changeup. It's actually really good. I just look at this and I wonder, is there any way this actually works over a very long sample? And if you go back and look at all the places Valdez has pitched, I mean, a, a true journeyman. He's pitched for seven big league organizations, if I'm counting correctly on the fly. He's he's pitched in Mexico. I mean, he's he's been all over the place. He appears to have uh, the ability to limit homers, which is important. And for the last decade for the most part he hasn't walked a lot of guys those are two things you want in a closer so true i kind of think there's at least a chance it could work and i don't think you're going to have to spend ridiculously high amounts of fab to get him i think that's the appeal you can kind of make more of a keep him honest sort of bid if you need some saves if you've already got two sources of saves throw a 40 or 50 dollar bid out of a thousand out there if you get them great if you don't no big deal somebody else had to pay more if you're a little desperate for saves, maybe only got one closer on your roster right now, I think you'd push up closer to maybe 7 or 8% of your budget because the Orioles are clearly in a rebuild. Their incentive to make Tanner Scott the closer is low. It's going to cost them money in arbitration. Tanner Scott looks really good, by the way, so perfectly fine option if he gets the job at some point. But I just get the feeling that the Orioles want this to happen. They want Valdez to be the guy. Can it work? I'm dubious. I mean, like, I just feel like, like uh, uh, change-ups are, you know, arguably the nastiest pitch in baseball, but it's because they work off of fastballs. I mean, that's what makes a change-up so filthy. That's why Luis Castillo's change-up is so filthy is because it works off of his fastball. And if there's nothing to work off of, then it's just like sort of in uh, like a slow sort of odd moving two-seamer than a, a legitimate change-up. And I feel fear for Valdez that once major league caliber hitters and major league caliber coaches and major league caliber infrastructures with all the video that they have get a longer look at this, that it's going to come down for him. There is always value in anyone who is getting saves in fantasy leagues. So long as saves and only saves is a category, there is some sort of waiver wire value in someone who is currently getting saved. So I think Valdez is absolutely someone you should be thinking about targeting on the waiver wire this week. I just, I just, I can't believe that a dude who throws his change up 83% of the time or whatever, and whose fastball comes in, it's like his fastball has a comparable velocity to his change up usage rate. <laughs> and that is typically 
not a good thing, right? And so I think ultimately this is not going to work out for him. I think the point you make about Tanner Scott costing them money in arbitration if he racks up 27 saves this year is good, and the Orioles have to have that in the back of their mind, uh, even though sort of a, uh, a you know, not a very honest way to operate your business, but that's something that's going to be in their head, and so that could also give Valdez a little bit longer of a leash. I'm just not really sure if it's going to if it's going to stick. I just think that major league hitters are going to be able to figure this out eventually. So here's your toss-up then. Ian Kennedy's out there in a similar number of leagues. He's available in 98% of TGFBI leagues, widely available everywhere else. Kennedy versus Valdez, saying this on Saturday before we get a chance to actually see what happens in the next couple of Rangers games against the Royals. If they can generate a safe chance before Fab runs, that would shed some light on their plans a little bit. Yep. Not knowing their plans and thinking about the limitations that someone like Valdez might have, are you more likely to speculate on a guy like Kennedy, or are you more likely to just take the chance on the guy that has shown that he has the job for now? I'm more likely to speculate on Kennedy. I mean, this would be Valdez locking down the closer's role in April would be, I mean, think of all the first time thing with the 36 years old, all the change ups, no velocity whatsoever, uh, no like real long major league track record at all. Like, uh, like this would be so many unprecedented things happening all at once. Um, it would just be, it sort of reminds me of that episode of the Simpsons when Mr. Burns has every single disease and they can't get through the door because they're in perfect harmony with one another. Right. <laughs> uh, that like they're like, he's got, he's in perfect health because all the diseases are balancing each other out. Like that's what we're looking for with Valdez here. And so Ian Kennedy, the skill sets better. We've seen him do it. I would take the shot on Kennedy. That's just absolutely ridiculous, but a great poll. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we get the benefit of more information. If I, if we, if let's say the Rangers yeah. don't generate a save chance and we're still left mm-hmm. to guess, I think I'm Valdez over Kennedy right now. Yeah, but they're sense. both low bid guys because mm-hmm. there's so little certainty with both of them. Kansas City looks like an absolute mess, by the way, on their side because yes. Josh Stomont didn't pitch on opening day. The game was all over the place, so you're trying to like figure out like how would a high leverage good reliever fit into this plan? Hard to tell. They had this huge lead. Wade Davis had to come in after Greg Holland had a meltdown. Like, were they just saving Stomont for later in the series so you could do back to backs on Saturday, Sunday? I really don't know what to make of that bullpen at all. So, uh, I would just keep an eye on that series as a whole for reliever clarity in the next couple of days. Other relievers that stood out, Julian Merriweather looked really good on opening day. I think he's interesting now because Jordan Romano's the closer, but if Romano gets hurt or if Romano struggles, Who's next is a real question. Merriweather mm-hmm. could be that guy. I know he's a guy that Eno Saris has talked about a lot over the last few months, too. So plenty to like there. I thought Chris Rodriguez looked really good coming out of the pen for the Angels. Hard thing there. I don't really see him going into the closer role anytime soon because obviously Rice Iglesias yep. is good. For and sure. Mike, Mike Myers is a good setup guy right now, too. So two seats away from closing. Probably not going to stretch out enough to be a starter, uh, but looks really filthy. So if opportunity comes his way at some point, be ready to pounce on Chris Rodriguez. And then David Bednar getting some love throughout the week in Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh. I agree with that. I think he's looked really good early on as well. And we know with Richard Rodriguez, there could be a trade at some point. Or if he falters, they're going to make a change. Bednar could be next in line to take over that job in Pittsburgh. Uh, last closer thought. Are you holding Peter Fairbanks? I mean, he pitched in the sixth on Friday, and Diego Castillo has back-to-back saves to open the year. I, I've, I'm really rattled on this one, given the Rays' past tendencies, but yep. usage in the sixth inning is uh, not what you want if you're speculating for some saves. 
this is the race. This is why we say don't get tied up with this bullpen. This is what happens with these guys. If you are in a league where where ratios and Ks can like still be very valuable, then I would still hold Fairbanks. If this is really a saves play and nothing more, I think you have to take what you've seen so far at face value, and he would be cuttable for me. All right. Well, beyond my internet not wanting to work really well, it is time for us to wrap things up. And I'm with you. I do think Fairbanks might be a guy that you have to let go this weekend, even though you know he looked fun just over a week ago. On Twitter, he's at mbeller. I am at Derek Van Riper. You can get in on a subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. So be sure to do that. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back on Tuesday. Uh-huh.